You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Hi, this is Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. I'm here today with Rich Lyons, who is the Chief Innovation and Entrepreneurship Officer at UC Berkeley, previously the Dean of the Haas School of Business at Berkeley, also at some point the Chief Learning Officer for Goldman Sachs. So Rich, I want to start up by asking, you started your career working on foreign exchange markets, market microstructure, all that sort of stuff. And now here you are, Chief Innovation and Entrepreneurship Officer for a university. So that's an interesting trajectory. I think each step makes sense. But what is this role? Where did it come from? How unique is it? Do other universities have a similar position? What's kind of the background story behind the creation of this role? Yeah, so it is new at Berkeley, and more and more universities are starting to experiment with it. So Berkeley wasn't first, but I'd say we're in the first wave of this. I think of it as bringing a dose of intentionality to the development, often rather fragmented, thousand flowers bloom type development that we're seeing in innovation and entrepreneurship at lots of universities. So one question then is, can we start to build platforms? Can we start to pull things together, knit things together, get things to be a lot more than the sum of the parts? That's kind of the essence of the role. Well, I mean, universities have always been sort of the place where ideas are born and the place where a lot of research takes place. And then usually those ideas are kind of handed off to industry and industry is responsible for commercializing them. I think Fred Terman came up with a unique model at Stanford and other universities were slow to adopt that idea. Do you think that every university is going to sooner or later have to think more intentionally about interfacing with the commercial world and the outside world when it comes to idea generation? I do, in part because this idea that there is a transfer point that the idea ends here and the application starts there. It's sort of like, no, all the magic, it's not a line, is in that interval between kind of early conception and ultimate application or benefit to society. And as you pointed out in your question, it need not be the for-profit world. This could be the creation of a civic organization or a policy movement or many other things. But I think every university is thinking a little bit more about how do we create an interface zone so that we can co-develop ideas a little bit more further downstream than what's coming out of our labs historically, and also have the university think about evolving ideas even after they start going into the application world. So, for example, faculty that are advising startups that already have products, right? It's sort of like, no, there's a whole interval that's live today. I think technology transfer offices, they kind of started to grow and blossom, I guess, in the 1980s or so with certain legislative changes. Exactly. I remember Genentech came out of Berkeley. And so presumably the technology transfer process, which is really all about taking academic research and converting it into something that's commercially applicable. How have these offices evolved? Has their role changed over the years? Have they sort of taken a more comprehensive view of, of how to translate research into practice? Yeah, I think in a major, major way, at least at Berkeley, and this would be true at a lot of universities, the unit that does technology transfer, traditional licensing and things along those lines, has a second component to it, and that's industry research alliances. So historically, we think about extramural funding of research as being National Science Foundation, NIH, etc. And the amount of private research investment, so this is way upstream. This is not just applied stuff 
has gotten very, very large. So we want both of those groups, the sort of licensing and patenting group, to be very much integrated with this industry research alliances group. And that's evolved in a major way. Another large evolution is equity. So normally it's sort of like startup. Why don't you pay us this amount of money each month or when you have product and you start selling the product, here's the fraction that we get. In fact, now the idea is, well, let's create a greater alignment. How about if we we may still have some licensing revenue, but how about Berkeley gets a fraction, some small share of your equity? And then we get interests aligned even more. And Berkeley, to its benefit, starts participating more in the nonlinear upside of the value that's getting created by the technology. So it changes it from a cash flow, a sort of fixed stream of cash flow, to an equity cash flow. And that benefits Berkeley. Now, how does this change the incentives or the culture around academic research? Because it wasn't that long ago that at a place like Berkeley, if a faculty member was doing stuff on the side or spending too much time in the corporate world, they were more or less forced to quit their jobs. I think Stanford was more open to having a foot in both camps, but most research universities frowned on this type of activity. Do universities have to make more explicit accommodations for their researchers to have multiple foci of their attention? Or is this consistent with the the vision of, of an academic institution that's focused on primary research for academic discovery? This is a live area of evolution and different institutions are at different places and moving in different directions. But the trend is very clearly toward greater faculty engagement in the way their intellectual product is getting translated into societal benefit. Ultimately, there's got to be some kind of guardrail on conflict of commitment. It's sort of like, wait a minute, you're getting paid by this institution and you're spending all your time out there. So you have to manage that at some level. But it's hard to find an institution that feels like it's gone too far yet. And most institutions are trying to figure out, all right, if our faculty in the past, for example, when they go up for performance evaluation, faculty have sort of thought, oh, I'm not even going to put in there that I've been advising and helped co-found a startup because it might not be looked at as a positive thing. That's shifted as long as these conflict of commitment guardrails haven't been crossed. When a faculty member says, I want to go on leave for five years and run my startup company, it's sort of like, you're not going to find very many institutions that say, no problem, go for it. But there's somewhere in between where faculty are starting to say, now it's viewed as a positive that I'm helping my research get out to the benefit of society within these conflict of commitment guardrails. Right. So when it comes to making an impact on the world, probably the the much bigger impact it's made is made by our students, by our alums. I mean, they just outnumber the faculty 100 to 1, probably, in terms of existing faculty versus existing alumni. And yet, when we think about making an impact, I think those are seen as separate. I mean, the TTO office is all about, okay, you know, how do we translate academic research? But then the teaching side of the university, which is like, how do we design curriculum and so forth and so on, you're sort of sitting on top of both of those. You're sitting on top of thinking about how to create students and alums that are going to impact the world and not just sort of faculty and researchers. How can the universities be more explicit about creating students that can make an impact not only while they're students, but after they graduate? Yeah, fundamental. And part of that too is this cognitive shift from they do that to I do that. I think of it in its essence as instilling a sense of agency 
passion for agency, a toolkit that allows them to live a life of, of agency to a greater degree. So that need not be narrowly the way some people think about entrepreneurship or innovation. But at the end of the day, you need this young shaped human capital to get out there and, and do important things. Also powered by values that make sure that that impact is, is on the positive side of the ledger. But let me give you a more concrete example. So one of the things that we find is that there's certain terms. I'll just use one term, venture capital. How inclusive has that term been historically? Not very. Let's be perfectly honest. And at least for me, the word entrepreneurship has felt like it has included me. There are a lot of people that don't necessarily feel included in that word. So part of, I think, distributing the sense of agency among a broader cross-section of people and making them feel included, I do that, not just they do that, is finding words and curriculum and, and a frame for an educational program that helps people do that. So one of the things we've done at Berkeley, we're not, not the only one who are going in this direction, but we have launched as an example, a program that we call Berkeley Changemakers. So what is a Berkeley changemaker and how do we think about that? So Berkeley has been involved in change in society for a long, long time. So it doesn't surprise anybody to see those two words together at Berkeley. And then we put together a course, for example, called The Berkeley Changemaker. One way to think about this is if you could teach every incoming student at a place like Berkeley or wherever else, a course, one course, what would you teach them? And there are a lot of really interesting things. Foreign exchange isn't the first thing most people would teach people. So the idea is this course, The Berkeley Changemaker, is really about critical thinking and collaboration and communication, a lot of things that are fundamental ingredients to that idea of agency in life. And we launched it for the first time last summer, and over 500 incoming freshmen took the course. It just exploded. So that notion of having a skill set and a mindset and something that's aimed at, at agency in a way that if it had been an entrepreneurship class, I think the demand would have been much lower. So that's just one example of trying to create a frame and an educational opportunity that's speaking to the students where they are, and we're seeing the chemistry in it. But that sort of highlights, I think, a little bit of a tension between the teaching and the research missions of the university, right? So if you were to say, this is what we want our students to get out of the education and then kind of work backwards from there, you'll design a curriculum with that goal in mind. But historically, the way kind of curriculum has been devised is you've got researchers who are interested in particular issues and then they just teach what they're doing research on, right? So it's more of a Research first. So biology, if we're doing research in biology, you know, we teach biology. We don't necessarily say, okay, here's how you're going to be able to make an impact in the world of biology, right? Yes. Is this tension between research and teaching something that is really something that we're having to think about more now? Or has this always been there under the surface? I love the question. I think it's right down the middle of the fairway. And here's one of the things that we did in designing this class. Because I'm a business school guy. You're a business school guy. I'm an economist by training. That's my field. And so when I think of agency, benefit to society, my mind does naturally go to a certain place. But we interviewed about 20 different research faculty on the Berkeley campus. And we asked them questions like, what does change making in your field look like? So Jennifer Doudna, what does she say about the pioneers, the intellectual pioneers in her field? What did Carol Crisp, the chancellor, say? We interviewed Carol Crisp. We interviewed Janet Yellen. We interviewed a bunch of deans. So it doesn't come at the exclusion of that intellectual pioneering activity. We wanted to integrate that because agency in the world of ideas, we sort of felt like it's got to be capacious enough to make room for that. 
for many students, it does go to a more practical place. But we tried to integrate both. Business schools have always been both praised and criticized for having a very practical mission. We're trying to create people that are recruitable, that will be successful. We're trying to create people that are going to ultimately donate money back to the university. And I think that if you fail in that mission, it becomes pretty clear when it comes to applications and placements. But I think that's also one of the reasons why business schools are, are considered by other parts of the university to be a little bit not taken as seriously in some ways, precisely for that reason. The purity of the academic research mission seems to be watered down to some degree. Are other departments becoming more like business schools in that sense? And is that a danger that once you start thinking in terms of how useful it is? I know the British government has begun to cut back on investment in, say, humanities, for instance, because of the belief that there's no immediate direct applicability or job placeability in those fields. Well, one way we'd like to think about it is that we'd like to push both boundaries. It's sort of easy to say If you're pushing on A, you're not pushing on B. In fact, you're pushing against B and vice versa. I can think that's kind of a natural mental model for people. But I'll use a super concrete example, postdocs. Almost every postdoctoral, we have 1,500 of them on the Berkeley campus at any given time. Almost all of those postdocs have as an aspiration the best research career at a great research university that I can get. And 10, 15, 20% max actually achieve that. And many of them go into industry. And so the idea is we've developed programming to help open the aperture of these postdocs so that if that academic career doesn't happen, they actually have more of a skill set to fall back on. We think that giving them that skill set, running them through the National Science Foundation's innovation core, so-called I-Core and other programming about how businesses get started and how research actually gets translated into benefit to the real world, whether they become a founder or not, a line of sight into that, we think, gets them a better academic position, right? That actually makes them better at being an academic. So that's not the lifeboat model. You're either in or you're out. So yes, I'm a business school faculty member, I'm an economist, but the idea that Berkeley or any great research university is all about finding job opportunities for its students, right? That is a dangerous place to go if you're doing that too narrow or singular a way. So I mentioned those three content areas of this Berkeley Changemaker curriculum. The first one is critical thinking. There isn't an academic at Berkeley that doesn't think critical thinking is sort of Mm -hmm. fundamentally on the academic purity end of the scale. How do you come up with better questions? How do you ask better questions? How do you read critically? How do you write in a compelling way? And so some of these kinds of things make us stronger on both fronts. And so if people feel that we're becoming too vocational, then that's feedback we need to hear because we need to keep the aperture wide. Yeah, there's definitely been a number of PhDs that are produced far outweighs the number of faculty positions available. And and I think a lot of schools just kind of forget the people. I mean, they kind of abandon them. And I've met a couple of our PhD students who are working in industry who graduated 10, 15 years ago. And I think their dissertation advisors were very disappointed that they had to go and work at low-tier places like Google. And and of course, now those people are in high demand as speakers in our classes. But to get back to this idea of critical thinking, I mean, I think everybody, all faculty members would agree and all employers would agree that something like critical thinking is absolutely necessary. But there are no professors of critical thinking, right? There's no department of critical thinking. When I was at Duke many years back, every single incoming freshman had to take a class in, in rhetoric. But there wasn't a rhetoric department. Instead, it was that every single graduate student had to learn how to teach rhetoric because it was presumed that they had to know this stuff as well in order to be successful graduate students. So 
Is there a tension between the need for the content in the curriculum while there's a need to staff, say, faculty within different research domains? How do you match that up? How do you make the the connection between what the students need and what the research priorities of the university are? Just a quick story that goes in the direction of your question. So I hope I've always had a clear enough conception of what that phrase critical thinking actually means. A faculty member by the name of Lisa Wymore, who is the chair of our theater, dance, and performance studies department, she didn't say it quite this way, but basically she said, do you understand how important empathy is to critical thinking? If you can't see and understand and feel how other people are responding to that idea, you're not seeing the whole thing. You're not thinking as critically as you could be. As an economist, my working definition of critical thinking really didn't admit that dimension. And for somebody who's a humanist, it's like that's the first point she would make. So to go back to your unsiloed theme, it's sort of like by having faculty, I mentioned those interviews, all the content that's in there. We've got STEM scientists, we've got social scientists, we've got a bunch of humanists, and they're giving their angle on what critical thinking looks like and so forth. And so the problem in your question about, look, at the end of the day, what's the organizing principle for the university? And we have departments and we have fields, and that's the way promotions work. So it's not like we don't have that tension. There's certainly a tension. But I think by having this kind of platform where we can pull people in from the humanities and social scientists and STEM fields, professional schools, and each of them has a little different view on what is critical thinking and what does collaboration mean and how does it happen and to what use do we put it and things like that. It feels like it's creating an even richer bundle than if we'd had a single department of Berkeley change making. Yeah, so when we talk about curriculum, I mean, most companies that are selling products, they have chief content officers, people who are responsible for the product, chief product officers. We don't really have kind of a chief curriculum officer at most universities who are responsible for like, hey, what is it that we really want to teach? These things kind of evolve and in fits and starts. We at Berkeley, we just introduced a really huge initiative around data science. And the original goal was to make sure that pretty much everybody across the university had access to data science in in one way, shape, or form. But these changes, I mean, they're they're very, very slow and they're very, very difficult and they're very painful. The organizational structure of the university is not designed for agility. And so as chief innovation officer, I mean, we can talk about the content delivery and how the business model of the university is probably going to have to change. But just in terms of content and what it is that we're teaching, how do we make sure that the inside world, what we're doing inside the university is moving with the same level of change as the kind of the outside world. I mean, how do we take this change-making skill and make sure that deans and administrators and faculty are as interested in change as perhaps the consumers are? Yeah. Aim it back at ourselves. Perfectly fair. I mentioned this course that we put together and there was a team of people working on it, obviously, that we launched this last summer that over 500 students took. So there was no requirement. Nobody said you have to take it. So I I think of it as demand-driven. And that class, as I mentioned, a little over 500. We built some connector courses to that. And in three semesters, summer, fall, and spring, we've served over 1,200 students. So people are asking us, how the heck did this happen so fast? When this team started talking about this Berkeley Changemaker curriculum about a year ago, literally. So from March to summer, we had to build a class and launch it. And I think the quick answer is because the team working on this is not a decanal unit. There is no department. There's no faculty. We had some donors that said we had to bootstrap it on the funding. So there's no budget. 
But donors like the sound of it. And like any startup, they're pumping in chunks of money. And we were able to move with sort of super agility because we just needed to pull people in and a bunch of people intellectually felt like this was a really neat place to go. So in any event, this is maybe rare and not the exception that is generalizable. But I think something like this tells me that there are ways of getting stuff done in agile ways, even in universities. And it isn't curriculum committees. I mean, you're always going to need that kind of thing. You got to allow the experiments to be run, right? You got to pilot a lot of things. And I think people who've been around universities for quite a while can kind of understand, all right, that experiment needs these conditions. And let's see if we can create those conditions for that pilot to see the light of day. Yeah, and some of the more innovative companies, they have a very conscious experimentation policy, right? Whether it's an internal R&D department that can rapidly evaluate experiments or whether they have an open innovation initiative or whether they have kind of a corporate VC arm or, you know, there's lots of, of other techniques that are used out in industry. The universities have, I guess, been kind of incorporating in little ways. I guess the bigger question is, do the universities even have a future? It's hard to imagine a world without universities. We've had them at least since the 13th century. We've had post offices and we had physical banks and we've had a lot of different things that are now disappearing. And the fundamental way of teaching hasn't really changed all that much since 13th century University of Bologna. You've got professors and you've got students and you've got desks. And so do you really think that the university is going to remain as a central institution for the transmission of knowledge? And if it does remain, will it be recognizable to us in 100 years? You use the phrase transmission of knowledge. When I think of a university, I think of great research universities. I think about the creation of knowledge. Society needs a knowledge creation capacity and always will. So I don't know anybody who disagrees with that premise. Now, you could then argue that universities is not where it's going to happen. But what we've seen, as you well know, over the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years, is that the commercial sector has basically said, Nobel Labs and Bell Labs, et cetera, that it's sort of like universities are where basic research is happening. So where will basic research happen in 50 years, if not within universities? I'm not seeing any sort of competing model to disrupt universities in terms of the knowledge creation part of it. Now, the knowledge transmission part, as you just said, 10 years ago, people were saying, boy, you universities, your knowledge transmission game is over and that online ed is going to disrupt you in a matter of years. There's been some disruption, but we're still very much in that game. The real question is, if universities are going to be at the center of knowledge creation in society, how do we build a financial model that's sustainable, that allows for the right kind of transmission. So if there's a kind of commoditized transmission, that's probably not going to be done by universities. But graduate education and certain elements that are a little bit more labor intensive are very likely going to be in the bundle that remains of universities in 30, 40 years. That's my sense. So you think perhaps that the bundle that's existed historically where the, the knowledge creation, the knowledge transmission are kind of under the same roof and there's a bit of a cross-subsidy. I think that the knowledge transmission has, certainly in business schools, has been a revenue generator that helps to fund the research. Kind of like in certain countries, you have companies and then you have company foundation and the foundation is, is doing all this great stuff and it's funded by the profit-making side of the business. 
If those did become unbundled in some way, this would presumably create a, a financial threat. It would disrupt the financial model for these institutions. And that would either increase the need for governmental funding or increase the need for corporate funding. But corporations seem to be happy funding their own internal initiatives. Where will the funding come from for now the knowledge creation piece? Well, this conjecture, it's a good question. I think one way to think about that is, I won't mention any names, but there are some accelerators out there, private sector accelerators that have been operating for 20 or 25 years that, as I understand it, have an endowment that looks almost half the size of Berkeley's. So if what you do with IP, so this is going to be a little more STEM focused, but if what you do with IP is you earn streams of licensing revenue. That's never going to add up to a ton. It can add up with very rare occurrences. It can add up to a lot, but it doesn't double your endowment in 25 years. But I think that notion that we're going to start to participate as an equity participant in the enterprises that get created from our IP, I think that that is a qualitatively different pipe that could be one of the sustaining pipes for that shifted mix toward basic research and away from more commoditized education. This is in line with your earlier point about how kind of technology transfer offices are promoting entrepreneurship as well. So it's the faculty members that are themselves also equity participants. And so their, their interests are aligned with that of the university. Yep. On the transfer side of things, the teaching side of things, you're right. 10 years ago, everyone said that online education was going to disrupt things. And we saw the creation of Coursera and, and Udacity and some others. And at the high school, we launched an initiative about 10 years ago to really seriously consider entering into the online education space. And I think a lot of universities haven't really pushed that super far, at least until COVID. And even though the universities haven't really pushed it, the other providers that are competing in the universities, you know, they haven't really taken over market share. And to the extent that a company like Coursera is, but still relied on the brand name of universities. Do you think that the COVID pandemic has really given new life to these initiatives and kind of accelerated the process? And if so, what's that going to look like? Because I know there are a lot of people at universities who are just thinking, wow, as soon as this COVID thing is over, you know, we can just go right back to what we're doing. Yeah. We can pretend like it never happened. Is that the sense that you get? Or are there folks that, that realize, hey, this is a change that's never going to go back? It's human nature to kind of hope that the status quo ante can get restored. But I think implicit in your question is the idea that some pretty fundamental parameters have shifted here. There are also a lot of remote learning opportunities that universities have built some know-how and some revenue streams based on. So the idea that as things go to digital and potentially more commoditized offerings, universities, many, are participating more heavily in that. I think the essence of it, though, is really, what is it about the on-campus bundle that is special? I think every university is sort of like, look, we just delivered all our courses. We just did it remotely. And it's like, it wasn't what we had before. So nobody ever forced us to run that experiment. Sort of like, all right, let's cut away all the other stuff and see how it works. And I think the idea is, in many ways, it worked really well. And in other ways, everybody realizes, oh my gosh, it is just such a different product. And so when I think about my own experiences, it's like it's being in that room with three other people working on the problem set. When somebody walks up to the board and starts writing stuff and it's like, how are you doing that? How are you framing this? It's those magical moments where it's like that elbow to elbow. So in some ways, it's the convening power of universities. 
I think people who are digitally oriented would say, we're getting better and better at convening power as well. But I think that bundle of shoulder to shoulder, elbow to elbow, and how does the personal development happen through that medium? I think the pandemic has called that question in a fundamental way and ran an experiment on us in a fundamental way that will make our thinking richer in that sense. Well, I think it's really pointed out that there are comparative advantages to the different delivery methods. And rather than having these two mutually exclusive delivery bundles where you have pure online versus pure bricks and mortar, I mean, there's a spectrum and there's a lot of different ways that you can divide up the content delivery and use the right channel for the stuff that makes sense, right? Absolutely. And the kind of convening power that the university has, whether it's the protagonist in a case or this or that alum, we could have alum in the San Francisco Bay Area who lives in the South Bay 40 miles away. They're just never going to drive to Berkeley in in a commute hour. They're just not going to do that. But we've been able to bring together some absolutely extraordinary people and bring them into the classroom and into our students' learning that we wouldn't have been able to before. Now, it may be that Coursera and other players have the kind of brand and reputation where they can do the same thing. But I think when a top research university calls somebody and says, can we have a half an hour on a Zoom call, and there might be a thousand people on the other side of the line, universities have a comparative advantage at delivering that kind of thing, not just with their alums, but I think with high-profile people more generally. I think that if we does resemble other markets, other media markets, it's a winner-take-all type of business. And the top universities like Berkeley and Stanford and MIT and Harvard, there's no limit to their scalability, at least for that subset of content delivery. It used to be that you had to have a pianist in every house if you wanted to listen to music, and now 99% of those pianists don't exist anymore. Do we think that the lesser universities out there are going to disappear? Is there any reason why someone would need to get 100% of their education from the local school across the street when they can get content from places like Berkeley and Stanford? Well, there's still the credentialing and the signaling, right? It's one thing to say, I took this course at name your fine university. It's another to say, I have a bachelor's degree from X. So I think what these universities have been careful about is, hey, we'll give you access to a bunch of stuff, but you're never going to be able to say you have a bachelor's degree from our university. Or when they do do that, they have all kinds of quality control mechanisms that say, okay, yeah, you got in through a remote door, but you had to overcome some very high hurdles. So I think as long as we live in a world where that credential is made scarce and it still remains very, very scarce... You could imagine somebody saying, I could take all these courses, the same courses and the same content, maybe better. You used Harvard. I'll use Harvard as an example from Harvard, but I won't have a degree from Harvard. Whereas I could go to name your university. I don't mean to disrespect any university, but more local, a state, state public school, for example, and say, I can get a bachelor's degree and I can get connected to the alumni network and I can get connected to the local jobs network and some other things that this local university. So if it's just about the classes and I don't care about the degree, that Harvard program may work for me. But when we say winner take all, it's not just winner take all in the delivery of the content itself. Is it really winner take all in the whole bundle, the credentialing, the access to local jobs, that kind of thing? I don't see winner-take-all anytime soon in the full bundle. Well, I mean, if you look at, say, radio, right? I mean, the local radio DJ used to be a real thing. I mean, I, I was a DJ in college, and we saw that all the local radio stations were just snapped up by 
massive chains that own hundreds and hundreds of radio stations. Now they still keep the local DJ around for a couple of things, but the entire track list, it's all controlled by some central algorithm. I mean, couldn't we have Harvard and then Harvard Light? You know, we got Armani, we got Armani Exchange. If you went to Harvard and you were on campus, then you, you're one of the elite 10,000 people that graduate every year. But if you were on their remote campus in, in Nebraska, then you, you, know, you just get a second tier Harvard degree. There's no technological reason why we couldn't do that, right? I think that is right. So let me add something. But what about values? Do we think that every university represents and is based on, lives by the same set of values? I would say absolutely not. People think of the values bundle of an Ivy, for example, differently than public universities. Now, part of what I think people are demanding is something as intangible as values. This institution is closer to what I'm about. And somebody could come to that conclusion without ever sampling a class, I think. So as we think about the total product, that wider product, we're not in kind of an increasing returns environment where it's sort of like, let as many people on the platform as, as you can. And the more that come, it's bang, they're all going to get more out of it. So I think we haven't traditionally thought of one of the competitive dimensions of universities being things like values, but I think increasingly we will. Now, one might imagine that if that does become a really central competitive dimension, that there might be sort of categories or subcategories of values or constellations of values, and, and people will select that might be kind of winner-take-all-ish within each subcategory. But I use the example simply to suggest that when we think about the total product of education, we really have historically not thought about values as one of the fundamental elements being delivered. And, and I think increasingly we will, because I think people are needing that and demanding that more of the institutions that they're tying their own reputations to. And I think this is probably one of the biggest impacts that you've made is that when you became dean at the Haas School of Business, probably the initiative which has left the biggest legacy and the one for which you're best known is this culture initiative. Could you tell us a little bit about how that came about? The idea that if you're going to differentiate you got to differentiate in a way that's difficult to, to imitate. And culture is very, very difficult to imitate. This could be strategy. I know your background is in finance, and now you, everyone talks about how you also are now an organizational behavior thinker. But this is also a key strategy, right? It's a, it's a differentiation strategy. Yeah, I think it is. You know, we've all seen superficial efforts at culture. You put five words on the board, on a card, on a poster, and now you've got a culture strategy. So I think there's naturally a lot of skepticism for people. I think rational skepticism that this is a deep differentiator. So we went into it knowing that that skepticism is there. It's rational. So what are we going to do that's real? And all these people that are applying for admission, just to take an example, but one of the important decisions for any university is who gets in? Who are you saying yes to? And if you have a set of principles and you can say this person has great test scores and great GPA and great work experience and we're going to not admit them because they don't line up with what we're talking about. You have to do at least that sort of stuff for this to have any teeth. So we kind of knew that going in. But, you know, if you ask most presidents of universities, let's just go up a tier, right? Presidents of universities, are you in the values business? Most of them, first of all, they would pause for a while. I think there'd be a little discomfort in the way the question is framed. If instead you ask the question, are you in the character business? Boom, you'd get an answer immediately. You bet your life we are. So there's space between those two questions. I think the space is really interesting. So part of what we did, wanted to do is 
did we feel people were selecting us as a business school among really top business schools because of this kind of intangible thing, like the values that we stood for? And we got some sense that the answer was yes, but we had never codified anything. And if you've never codified anything, using it for admissions in it anywhere close to intentional way is just not going to work. So we looked at that uncodified culture and said, let's codify it. Let's drive it into our processes. Let's see what we can do. That's what we worked on. But just to conclude this, I mean, at the end of the day, people say, well, show me. Where's the data? Let's be a little evidence-based here, please. And so we put out a survey of our MBA. So the first year class, every school does this. But one of the questions we asked them in the survey is, if you had to pick one reason and you only get one why you chose this business school over others. And in the full-time MBA programs, as you know, people tend to get into two, three, four good schools. They don't just apply to one school. And the third most cited reason was Silicon Valley Bay Area. I wanted to get my MBA in this zone, this geography. Second, which was pretty close to that first, second most cited was reputation, ranking reputation, that bundle. The most cited reason with three times as many sites as either of those first two, culture, defining principles. We framed it as defining principles. So this is people's decision whether to come or not. And being asked, you would get to only pick one. What's the separator? We didn't use this term, but what's the competitive separator? Bang. And so I think what that taught us is if you're willing to be convicted and you're willing to make hard decisions, I mean, you have to let some perfect entry exam scores go under this strategy, I think people are really hungry for institutions that are taking what they feel like is an authentic stand. How do you make this work, though? Because if it was simply a matter of screening, right, it was simply a matter of evaluating applications and doing interviews and identifying the folks that have yep. a certain set of values, a certain character, HR departments could just leapfrog over the whole school and do it yep. themselves. So it has to be a costly signal in some way in order for it to work. Or it has to be that there is some transformation that takes place through the educational process. So it's either transformation or it has to be a place that makes it so uncomfortable for those people that those people would never accept admissions. And so it is a credible signal. So how do you craft the educational experience so that this is actually a meaningful and credible signal so that when you graduate people out of the institution and you say that they live these values, it's actually an accurate description? Yeah. Really important question. And selection isn't enough. I think most people would say selection is a necessary condition to have selection take this into consideration. I remember one student saying, I came here not so much because I think these describe me perfectly, but because this is the leader I want to be. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't want to select away from a person like that who says, I believe this and I want to, I'm going to go there. I aspire that. Okay. To answer your question more specifically though, when we first did this, just being perfectly frank, if we told the faculty, hey, in your teaching evaluations, we're going to ask the students one of these four principles. I won't walk everybody through them, but one of them is confidence without attitude, confidence without arrogance. So if we told our faculty when we first launched this, given all the rational skepticism, I get it, that we're going to put whether you conform, whether your classroom behavior as a faculty member was consistent with confidence without attitude. For example, they would have said, no, you're not. No, you're not going to do that. Actually, there's now, in every teaching evaluation in the Haas School, there is a question now, you know this, Professor LeBlanc, that asks, does this faculty member represent well the Haas School's four defining principles? So that's one of those changes where it really wouldn't have been legitimate to try and do that right off the bat. But that sort of changes the way the students see that question, the faculty see that question, and so forth. That's one example. There have to be like 20 or 30. 
Part of how this works is a peer-to-peer socialization. No student comes in not knowing what these four things are. You can't get through the admissions process. So they've all self-selected to some degree. They all know that's there. Many of them said, I was skeptical And part of why I changed to come here is because I met a bunch of your current students and it was real. And they said it was real. And now I believe it's real. And that's why I'm here. So even if you stripped out all the classroom experience, all the talking to the dean and the dean talks about it, right? The only thing you're relying on in terms of the socialization that's happening while they're there is peer to peer. You'd still get a very powerful effect because they call each other out on this stuff. It's sort of like, wow, that wasn't very confidence without attitude of you. And they will actually jokingly say stuff like that. So it has to be on many, many fronts, and you have to kind of measure it, assess it after the fact, whether it's got traction, bite. Going back to the start of your question, if you can make it work, it's very hard to replicate for other institutions, competing institutions. And maybe at the end, it's a source of pride for people for crying out loud. People want to be part of an institution they can be proud of. And if it's something that they feel like it's real and it's a little different than what everybody's saying out there, just to put it to you, frankly, how many business schools at the very top are going to come out tomorrow and say, we are all about confidence without attitude? Well, they might, but there's branding and then there's culture. And branding's easy. Anybody can brand, but culture's tough. Anybody can message about branding, but if you put out a brand that is, creates dissonance where people say, really, did you just say that? It could just blow up in your face. So I take your point, but when you message things that other people view as inauthentic, as contraindicated, you get into trouble. So I think that's kind of where the rubber meets the road here. Yes, at the end of the day, you have to deliver on it and it has to be real. But part of what I guess I'm saying is, whether you're talking about a business school or you're talking about a university, there really are things that you can say. There are things that you can say that everybody says. Excellence. Yeah. Not to take away from excellence. Everybody says that. Say something everybody's not saying. Say something that would create dissonance if those others said it. And then go for it. And so I think that's where competitive separation comes from. So I interviewed someone recently who said that all management is change management. And we have students, we have faculty, we have staff, we have all sorts of folks involved in the university mission. And some have more frequent turnover than others, and some change at different paces than others. If you introduce a new culture, or at least if you're trying to strengthen an individual culture, is it harder to do it with sort of the longer-lived people? Because you can turn over students every two years, but there are people like faculty members who are around for decades, it might be difficult to get them to buy into new elements of culture. Yeah, couldn't agree more. If you're codifying things that are sort of understood, that don't get codified and look dissonant to people. So when Berkeley said, question the status quo, that was one of the four. It's not like the faculty heard that and said, really? What do you mean? Sort of like, we put some words to it. Still, I mentioned there were a bunch of implementation execution levers where it's like, no, 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 that lever isn't available. The faculty wouldn't let us do that in year one or year two. Show us that students are selecting us based on this. Show us that companies are coming to recruit at Berkeley based on this. Show us that donors are saying, this is part of why I'm giving this gift. You got to put a benefit statement on things for people. And that is good old fashioned change management. So I think that's one of those audiences where it's sort of like, this is a 10-year process. This isn't a 10-month process. So you've got high-frequency change management with certain audiences. Students are a great example because they're in and out. It's lower frequency with staff. For a lot of those tenured faculty, it's very low frequency. But I think you use the right levers for the right audiences, and hopefully you get to the other side. 
And to go back to your scaling point, it's clear that we can scale like remote delivery of content, but I think you're implying that scaling culture is hard. We know that small companies, when they become big companies, they, they lose a lot of their culture, particularly the companies that are very dynamic and the ones that are entrepreneurial. Do you see obstacles in taking, say, the, the kind of culture that a place like Berkeley has developed and scaling it out? If we were to expand, say, our content delivery, would we be able to infuse that content delivery with some of the aspects of the culture? Super question. I think the jury's out. If thinking about the content delivery is bits and bytes, you might imagine that there's no culture dimension to that. But I think as we start to think about how does socialization to a culture happen, what's the onboarding experience? What's the first experience you had when you took this class at Berkeley? If there's some message around, to use the example of what we were just talking about, a value being question the status quo or a value being confidence without attitude, if that starts to get integrated, impounded into every course or in every discussion session. And you can do it in ways that make people gag, and you can do it in ways where it's sort of like, we're just reminding you that's what we're about. If you want to go to that other program, they are about other things. So I think a lot of experiments need to be run. How do you put culture, how do you put identity into an online class so that it's real and it actually shapes people's behavior, right? They, they begin to share those norms and, and values and, and behaviors. I think that's an area of great experimental opportunity going forward. Now, you look at a company like Goldman Sachs, which you worked with many years ago as chief learning officer. Recently, the CEO came out and said that Goldman Sachs views itself as a software company with a banking license. I've been joking in my classes for at least 20 years that sooner or later, every CEO will say the same thing. I'm a yep. soft CEO of a software company that fill in the blank. And I think it was Robert Crandall who said in 1990, I'm a CEO of a software company that owns planes. And so it's taken 30 years for CEO of Goldman Sachs to join uh, CEO of American Airlines. That's been a fundamental business model transformation that Goldman Sachs has been going through ever since the, the financial crisis. So I want to circle back to this idea of the university and the business model of the university. We've talked a bit about the ways in which the content delivery can change, and we've talked a bit about scaling and so forth. But is the whole idea of short-term learning, four-year degrees, two-year degrees, degrees in this particular subject matter and that particular subject matter, right? The model, the way in which we've thought about getting credentialed and having our, our education and training line up with these credentials, is that something which is going to have to fundamentally change? It feels to me like there will be room for credentialing for a long time. I think one of the things we're starting to see is unsiloed credentialing, by which I mean interdisciplinary credentialing. Dual degree programs is a perfect example. We're going to mash up molecular and cell biology and business in your undergraduate degree so that they're not two fields. It's like fully mashed up together. And you're going to come out the other side not thinking about these as two fields, but thinking about them as more of an integrated whole. Or when you look at a lot of them, like there's a minor on the Berkeley campus, as you know, called global poverty and practice, right? So a lot of these things emerge within the university that are very cross-disciplinary, and they're, they're minors. They're not sort of majors, and they're not departments. So I see a lot of that kind of experimentation happening one level below the major and the department. But I think that people are starting to take these credentials ever more seriously. Here's a credential where it's like, wow, that's actually quite special, in part because it does pull together so many things. 
I think that's kind of the way it's playing out in the near term are these de facto micro credentials, or you could call it a kind of badging that's happening within the university, inside the university arena that is getting valued more and more highly externally. Then beyond a certain point, I mean, Google announced that if we're looking at people that are, have already had employment, we don't really care what school you went to. We really don't care what certificates and degrees you have. We just care about like what you can do and who you are. What kind of character do you have? What kind of capacity for learning do you have? What kind of skills do you bring to the table? So I think for a lot of our universities, we bring the students in, we give them a degree, we give them a handshake, we send them on their way, and then we shake them down for money for the Alumni Association. And you and I have talked about this a bunch of times about the idea of lifelong learning. But lifelong learning, is, it's difficult to implement because you've got these different silos and buckets within the school. You've got the degree programs and you've got the alumni offices and you've got executive education. And they're not part of a unified vision of a lifetime relationship that people might have with an educational institution. What would have to change in order for education to move from, say, a product model to a subscription model or a true lifelong learning model? Yeah. Well, education as a service, uh, that transformation you and I have talked about in the past, and you've been one of the leading thinkers on, at least for me. Let me go back to something implicit in your question and then try and answer it even more directly. But you said Google and other companies are sort of saying, we don't care what university you went to. We just care about your character, among other things. So this idea that maybe the university you went to and that crucible, that set of experiences actually had quite an influence on your character. Mm -hmm sense of entitlement, for example, or there are things that get associated. It's a gross overgeneralization to say everybody who went there is like this. Nobody would ever say that. But are there correlations and associations with different universities that, that reflect on character? Of course there are. So it's even hard to separate those. But going back to your subscription model idea, rhetorically, if we ask ourselves the question, what institution has been more important in your life than your undergraduate alma mater? For some people, it's a faith institution. It's not like nobody has an answer to that. But for a huge fraction of people, the most identity-marking, life-marking institution by far is their undergraduate alma mater. So that's the starting point. And I think if you have that as a starting point, then the idea that there's a lifelong relationship, it's like we've kind of framed the lifelong relationship as you're part of the Alumni Association now. And it's sort of like, if we start with the idea that the foundation is this profoundly identity-making experience that one has for four years, how do we design a subscription model or a service model that is tantamount to that, that is sort of respectful of the role that universities have played in our lives? And it doesn't feel like we've got there yet. It really does feel like here's our product. It's kind of like what you were talking about. It's like we're a software company. It's sort of like, is our product really the degree? Is it really the class? Is it really the major? Is it the bachelor's? Because in some sense, even those things aren't enough to add up to that institution has been the most important in my whole life by far. Right. It's often the relationships that are formed at that moment that continue for a lifetime. That's a fundamental part of it. So if universities start to frame what they're doing in that larger sense. I think that they will re-envision their service offering and it will look much more like a service and much less like a product. And, you know, we're already seeing this to some degree. I think I'll take Berkeley as an example. It's got about 500,000 as a university living alumni. Its connection to its alumni 30 years ago on average versus its connection to its alumni today, 
very large delta. And Berkeley's put a lot into that delta. But I think that it's not like we're at a, an upper asymptote here. I think it's exponential. I think there's just, there's so much room mm-hmm. to get alums connected to the university in spiky ways, in ways that sort of leverage their superpower, get them involved in classes. I mean, imagine a platform that basically said for alums, here are a thousand different ways you could frictionlessly get re-involved in the university, Mm -hmm. if you could imagine that platform. And it's sort of like, oh my God, I think an awful lot of alums would say, yeah, I'd love to do that. Nobody's ever offered me that platform. And little pieces of that platform are getting built out and, and we're seeing this incremental, but I view it as vision scaling. We haven't talked about vision scaling today. But I think when you see something and then you realize, let's paint a picture of the limiting example of that. What would that full platform look like? It's like, well, that platform is going to get built step by step. And the end point is going to be something where it's like, it's not just that we have courses and you can take them. It's sort of like, would you like to advise a biotech company? Would you like to work in the art and practice lab? Would you like to give a talk in this or that? Anyways. If you thought about sort of the thousand plus different ways that alums might engage, and then you ask, what subset of those are we currently offering them? (laughs) It's a tiny subset, and we just haven't built out the platform to deliver the whole set yet. And I think probably as people change jobs more and more frequently, you know, people in Bay Area, they work for Facebook for a year, and then they go work for Google for a year, and they do a startup for a year, right? The source of identity that you get from your employer is becoming less and less important And I think that that vacuum can be filled by the university relationship. It can be almost like belonging to a tribe or an extended family group. The graduates that I know from, say, the executive MBA program, I mean, when they graduate, they have 70 new, like, friends for life that they can trust and count on for, for advice, for feedback, and so forth. And so if you could scale that to some degree to half a million people, it would really be tremendous. Yeah. Rich, this has been great. I'm glad we were able to find a time to talk. Normally, the price of admission to be on the show is you got to write a book. I know you, you've got some stuff way back in, in the old days, but hopefully yeah. you'll translate a lot of this thinking into a book at some point, and then we can get you back on again to talk about that book. So thank you so much, Rich, for joining me. Look forward to that. Thanks. Great. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www dot unsiloedpodcast.com.